from recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. I'm your host, Steve Urban, and here is your RiderFlex episode of the day. And on today's episode of the RiderFlex podcast, we have guest Andrew Smith. He's the founder and CEO of Outrider, that's Outrider.ai, a software and robotics company providing autonomous zero emission yard operations for logistics hubs. Andrew Smith on the RiderFlex podcast. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Where are you at today? Are you in uh, Oregon or are you in Colorado? I am here in Golden, Colorado, where Outriders headquarters is based. Awesome. Okay, very cool. I, by the way, you live in Oregon, right? Is that right? Do you live that, there? That's correct. After selling my last business, I uh, did a, a little bit of reflection and uh, we moved to Bend, Oregon, which is at the base of a snow-capped volcano. So we've got some great skiing and biking and climbing at our back doors while thinking about new company ideas. You're a huge outdoor guy, aren't you? That's, that's, that's correct. Actually, uh, our head of IT and I were out climbing this morning in Colorado to kick off the workday. Is that right? Oh, good for you. You're in good shape then. How, how old are you? 41, 42? Uh, gosh, it's, thank you so much. 44 now, halfway to 88. You look great. Yeah, I'm sure you're in good shape. You've, have you done all the 14ers here? I've done some of them. I've done some of them. So uh, got, uh, that's the reason we based the company here in Colorado. No, it's not really. It had to do with uh, our engineering crew. But, uh, uh, but yes, we've got, I, I got two other engineers going doing a 14-footer uh, this, uh, this weekend, I think. There is something about being outside in the mountains, whether it's Colorado or Oregon. There is just something about it. I I'm not quite as adventurous as you doing 14ers, but I do go to the mountains camping on solo trips all the time. Very and cool. there's, there, there's just something about it. It just does something for me. I don't, I, you know, it brings me back into a, just a different state of mind when I'm, when I'm headed back on Sunday night and Monday morning, I'm just a new person. It's a, it's a different world. And it's, and it's pretty neat with all the horrendous things this pandemic has done. Uh, that is the one thing you can go do and forget about the pandemic for a while and, and uh, be out in nature for sure. Have you noticed, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed this, but this year, this spring and summer, the mountains are a lot busier than yep. I am used to seeing a lot more. Even when I, the places I know where I can go where there's usually nobody, I'm like, what the heck? I see a person over there. I can't believe, I can't believe there's somebody else here. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it, it really, one of my, as we talked about this more, but one of my passions is pristine wilderness areas and yep. just having space available for people to disappear to, even without a pandemic is important, but as, as more people get into it, it certainly crowds up the trailheads and, and shows how valuable these open spaces can be. Totally agree. So that's another podcast. You should come back on the show and we should talk about that and say, cause I'm, cause I am all about preserving that space and I'm going to go down a rabbit hole here. But when I see that national forest land getting bought by private property and building stuff, I get, I get wound up about that, but that's another show. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Tell us about Andrew personally, where he grew up and some family stuff. Sure. So uh, I'm from new England originally. Um, I grew up in a, a, have a great set of parents, a great older sister who, um, uh, kept me in line and uh, grew up in New England, mentioned some of the outdoor interests. I spent a lot of time uh, in northern New England exploring the woods of New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine. So that's where sort of my passion for the outdoors came from. Um, I uh, have since then uh, lived both in a number of places around the country as well as internationally. Um, and we get into kind of some of the, the background on, on profession. I can share some of those stories, but uh, but yeah, so uh, great family and always felt I was very lucky to have a good family, good education and good network and felt a little bit of responsibility to, to build socially and environmentally responsible uh, companies on top of that platform from which I started. What, uh, tell us about your folks, what they do for a living? So uh, my father had a really interesting job. He was the director of a nonprofit that did historic preservation in the Boston area. So uh, really neat thing. Uh, again, as a kid, I thought he just talked on the phone and, and typed on a computer. Um, but it turned out what he was doing is is working on public private sector partnerships to keep things from being knocked down and turned into parking lots. And instead uh, trying to find reuse, trying to find ways to reuse historic buildings to really maintain that historic feel to Boston area. And anyone who's been in that area really appreciates the efforts he was involved in. 
Uh, my mother on the other side, she did uh, financial aid work for colleges. So helping students get together financial packages to go get educations that they wouldn't otherwise get to have. So uh, really, uh, really passionate people feel lucky to have uh, grown up in that environment. Are they still in Vermont? Uh, Massachusetts, uh, Salem, Massachusetts. So Oh, you went to, okay, okay, that's right. You went to college somewhere in Vermont, I believe, right? Didn't you? That's correct. I uh, went to college okay. at Middlebury College in Vermont. But yeah, they're, they're still in Salem, Massachusetts, where the witches are. <laughs> you couldn't talk them into coming out to Colorado, did you say? Or Oregon, either one, you're like, you could Well, they, they're, they're good travelers. My sister moved out to Montana. I moved out to the Cascades of Oregon. So uh, they've got good, good, uh, good places to visit for sure. But they've got a, a great community back in New England as well. Ah, oh, very cool. And what's your sister do now? So uh, my sister's had a number of different jobs. She works for a tech company in Montana, but she was a teacher for a long time. And she, um, she was uh, the first of our family to really get into the outdoors activities. So uh, oh. she married a, 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 a prior fly fishing guide and, and uh, ah. showed what a good life could be living surrounded by mountains. That's how she got to Montana. Montana. She oh, married yeah, a- exactly uh, via, via Wyoming and a couple other western states. But um, yeah, it's a, a great, great, great places to visit for my parents and from New England. I can see how some of the things from your family shaped you a little bit, right? And some of your early passions, right? There's obviously some tiebacks there. Absolutely. I, I sort of make the joke. Uh, I would have been a little bit, uh, a little bit. Not that I'm not a little dorky still, but I would have been too dorky and played a little, way too much Monopoly. And then my sister kind of uh, got me out of the house and showed showed me a little bit more of uh, of what was out there. So um, definitely influence across the board. Very good. So how? Why physics? Tell me why physics when you went to Middlebury. Yeah. So the the uh, the real story of of my focus on the commercialization of environmental technologies goes back to those early days. So okay. spending all that time in the outdoors uh, uh, was always where I got my most energy. Uh, and then the the story is in sixth grade I got a Car and Driver magazine and I got really into Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and Porsches. Okay. And I ended up having posters of them on the wall and collecting model cars. And then I had this science teacher in seventh grade who told me that Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and Porsches got bad fuel economy. And so the true story is I told my parents in eighth grade I was going to start an electric vehicle sports car company. Are you serious? Uh, Are you serious? This is a true story. Uh, Elon did such a good job. um, (laughs) I had to do other things, and I'll talk about the new company and how I got into trucking. But um, really, my path started very early. When I went to college, I knew I was very interested in technology. um, But uh, so I wanted that physics background. Okay. Uh, and so I, my senior, my, my thesis was on uh, using solar energy to power fuel cell vehicles. Um, so this, this goes back a long way. It's pretty amazing to see these electric vehicles now taking over the market uh, mm. 20 plus years later. And isn't Elon is like your age, right? Aren't you guys about the same age? I think he's got a couple of years on me and a slightly, okay. uh, he, he, <laughs> he, uh, he dove in at a good time, but um, certainly our, our company Outrider um, is also focused on the commercialization of environmental technologies. Uh, uh, we can share more on that as well. So, all right, yeah. So let's let's do this. You went on to get an MBA right at Dartmouth, I believe. That's correct. Okay, very good. Congratulations, by the way. Great education. Uh, but did you know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? I mean, you had these passions and you had these interests, but did you know you also wanted to be a business owner? So, so yeah, again, this goes back early on. I always thought business, well, actually I can give a very specific story. So um, again, in college, I was interested in environmental technologies and I I started working in the summers for this program in Massachusetts that was promoting electric vehicles. I actually managed a demonstration of electric vehicles. What was so fascinating to me was the government had lots of power, but it was pretty slow moving. And it was encouraging electric vehicles, but it could only go so far. It couldn't innovate the actual technology to get it done. There was also nonprofits that were encouraging uh, cleaner emission vehicles, but it, it wasn't the, the nonprofits that were really inventing the new technology. And I realized there was this huge opportunity to be a private sector company and really bring together all the pieces to make a okay. cost-effective, uh, highly valuable commercial solution to some of these problems. And so. Um, so yeah, that entrepreneurship interest started early. I, I got the, the technology background in college, 
Um, after college, I jo joined a management consulting firm, and that was my initial business education before business school. It was a chance to see a lot of different industries. Uh, that's when I had a chance to work in other countries as well. Uh, but coming into business school, the idea was uh, to take that two-year period of business school to step back and think about what was that company that I was going to start to have that first real company ownership experience. You were a consultant for several years, right? Five, six, seven years, something like that. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I worked for a company called Monitor Group, which has since been acquired by Deloitte. Uh, okay. But within Monitor, there was a group that um, uh, became known as On the Frontier, and it was advising uh, businesses in developing countries. So really another interesting experience in the um, unexpected experience in that career trajectory where uh, my interest in sustainability and, and uh, what the world of the future would look like uh, gave me the opportunity to work in some developing countries. So I've worked um, through Latin America, a little bit in Africa and Asia. Great experience. At what point did you, now were you married at the time or no? No, I, uh, I, <laughs> I, I wasn't during the consulting and I wasn't in the very early days of entrepreneurship. And I um, made a funny uh, statement once in an entrepreneurship conference where after having my first child, I said, I will never invest in a company where the founder has a child because uh, I hadn't quite figured out how to make that balance work. I now have a, uh, what I've experienced is that kids actually make you prioritize your time a lot better um, and focus on the most important things. So I, I take that back. But yes, those early days was unmarried uh, when traveling internationally. You know, isn't it true as an entrepreneur, if you don't have a family, I've seen guys like that almost kill themselves because they just work so much that they literally, be, it becomes unhealthy for them physically, mentally, uh, and they've just burned themselves out. I mean, if you own a business and you have a family, you're, you're forced, like you said, to, to manage it and balance it a little bit better, which is probably healthier overall. It, it, and, it's, it's really amazing that, that lesson. Um, and it makes you find the right people earlier in the process. Isn't that the um, truth? I, I, I learned from a CEO friend, a great quote that was the first time you build a business, you spend 90% of your time doing everything and 10% of time on people. The second time around, you realize you spend 90% of the time on people and 10% on everything else. And, and, and truly with kids, you just realize if you try to do everything, not only will you fail in your family life, et cetera, but you actually don't grow as fast. Yeah. I mean, you just can't scale it as fast. Tell me that, that moment. I mean, how did this transition happen? You're with the consulting firm. How did you decide to start 80? I think it's AT Dynamics, right? Yeah. How did you so decide? Tell me about that quick transition there and how you got it started. Go ahead. Sure. So, so uh, I left consulting, went into business school. And during the first several months of business school, I was uh, meeting with a, a classmate um, over beers and a day a week, thinking about business ideas, essentially, okay. Okay. Um, reaching out to some some various uh, uh, friends and, and network about possible ideas to go after. And people say, you know, how do you start a business? I think, or how do you get that original idea? I think having a couple boxes around the types of things you're interested in really allows you to narrow your focus. Uh, having a little bit of focus, knowing, hey, I'm looking for a green technology idea really helped, you know, get your brand out there as that's what you're looking for. But um, so AT Dynamics, the first company I started uh, was the result of going on a ice climbing trip. This is when you use the ice axes and climb the vertical waterfalls. Oh, with a good friend of mine named Cam Brenzinger, who has his own company called Nemo Equipment. But he'd been contacted by what I did, what I'd classify as a uh, this great guy who was a, uh, I would say, a frustrated aerodynamicist who pointed out the simple fact that the worst shape to pull down the highway at 60 miles an hour is a big rectangular box from right? an aerodynamic <laughs> and fuel efficiency standpoint. And yet everything we ship is in these inefficient big rectangular boxes. And it turned out if you put this set of this fairing, this aerodynamic device on the back of the semi-trailer, you could reduce the fuel consumption at highway speed by four to five percent. This is two to three billion annually for the long haul trucking industry. Are these the things and that I see right now every day going down the highway when I see these things? Have you ever seen the tail? There you go. Yeah, there's oh, about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Seven. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen. So those trailer tails, yeah, the cardboard box is uh, in my home office of the first prototype of a trailer tail. But we, uh, we, we essentially, um, the, the way I evaluated that idea and decided to lock into it was. I didn't know exactly what the final product would look like. 
okay. and didn't know all the steps to get there. But to me, that was just a perfect example of something that should be the new normal. Just like every aircraft now has those curved wings at the end of their wings, those little winglets are actually for aerodynamic purposes to reduce drag at the, at the, at the uh, wingtips of an aircraft. These uh -huh. tails should just be on the back of every single trailer every out there. And so if you know something's the new normal, you then have the, uh, the, the market opportunity to be persistent. You can figure out the details along the way, but as, as long as you feel like you're bringing something that's just going to be true in the future to market, um, you can be pretty sure at some point along that path, you'll be successful. Did you, did you bootstrap this thing yourself or did you raise cash in the beginning? How'd you get it going? So uh, great story there. We definitely bootstrapped in the beginning. Um, I, I don't. I don't claim that the the method we used was the most effective method, but it shows uh, how you mobilize resources you don't control. So the the business plan is free to do. You can build cardboard box prototypes for free. Uh, we won a couple business plan competitions, ah, which there we go. A little there bit of cash. Go. There we um, go. Had a great experience. Uh, gentleman named Jack Gill who uh, organized an angel investment group called the Goose Group in Texas. Uh, he, he, was, he led the group that provided the $100,000 investment prize to one of these business plan competitions. Cool. And the best thing that ever happened, I always said, is I flew to Houston, Texas to claim this prize. And he said, hey, before we give you the money, why don't you give us a business update? And so I gave him the business update and I was sort of waiting for him to hand over this check. And he said, hey, that's a great thing. Why don't you come back in three months and tell us how it's going? And I sort of was like, well, okay. And I left right. this room with all these you know, wealthy investors without the prize check. And I always say it was the best thing that ever happened because then I had three months to show progress with still no money in the bank. And so we fixed our cardboard prototype and we enhanced the business plan and we talked to new more, to more customers and we came back three months later and, and literally we would have thrown away those $100,000 if we hadn't gone through that process. So good lesson learned about how much you can do without cash in the bank. And did they also end up becoming an investor along with the prize money? Not only did they put in the $100,000, but they ended up leading significant rounds and raising, contributing millions of dollars over the life of the company. Wow, that's a cool story. Let's just take a, let's just take a pause right there. That was a major, that was a major moment for you personally, <laughs> right? That was, a, that was a huge moment for you. I mean, it's because before that, before you won those prizes, those little contests, you're bootstrapping it. You had quit your job. You weren't, you weren't working as a consultant, so you had I no money coming. Actually, just as a comment there, uh, and this would be a recommendation to anyone wanting to do this. I was still, so I, this was my first year of business school that I came across and, and formed a partnership with this inventor. So I had about a little over a year to participate in these business plan competitions and incubate this thing in the background. Now, to be clear, so I was working pretty hard with the idea being uh, we, we basically, by the time I left business school, we had that $100,000 check. And I think we raised a few okay. other checks worth 10 or 20,000. So there was a okay. tiny bit of money. But tiny. again, from an entrepreneurship standpoint, because you're so, uh, I don't like to use the word dumb, but because you're so dumb in the beginning, no matter what you're starting, <laughs> it's really nice to have that other job or have, you know, be in school and work out all the goofy stuff so that when you hit the ground running, you have a little bit of credibility behind you. Yeah, that's so that's so true. I mean, you know, we could go we could talk for two hours, right? Everybody debates like, oh, you got to be all in. And I do believe you eventually have to be all in. Absolutely. Uh, but at first, while you're trying to get it going, and you're trying to bootstrap it, if you got a little cash coming in from something else, uh, the consulting or something, or maybe your spouse or your partner still is bringing in income, and they can support you because yeah, 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 exactly. And, and, and really, I mean, my big thing is persistence and commitment is such a big part um, of getting through your first, well, any startup, but, and, and you just want to take, I mean, that, that whole model of like, I ran my credit cards out to their max and was, you know, completely flatlined, like all of a sudden you don't have the ability to go that extra six or 12 or 18 months. Do you have to find some way to, um, to be in it for the long haul? I had a guy tell me once, he's like, listen, he goes, unless you have gotten up in the morning and looked out the window to see if your car is still there because he was afraid it was going to be repossessed and you really <laughs> haven't been an entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, so, all right, so you, so you get, so now you're getting some funding, you're getting, getting some traction. You ended up running this thing for what, eight or nine years and had a, had a su successful exit. Can you tell us 
because I want to, you know, get into your new company, obviously Outrider, but can you tell us just real quick on this first company, what'd you get it to in revenue? I don't know if you want to share that. And then, and then, you know, why you decided to exit and just a little detail there. Sure. So, um, the, uh, let's see, lots of stories in that one, but just kind of fast forwarding it and some of the learnings along the way. Um, so we took that company from a cardboard box prototype to over 75 employees. We deployed 40,000 trailer tails with 500 trucking companies in nine nice. countries. Nice. Um, so nice. we went through everything along the way. Um, we, uh, uh, you know, in, incredible experience, lots of uh-huh. pain points, lots of uh-huh. victories along the way. Um, and wow, yeah. when we sold the business, you know, I, I, I think the, uh, what we saw is we could sort of see where the business was going to go. Now, it, it's always challenging to give your baby away, and it's always hard for acquirers to really, you know, keep keep the same momentum that a, a startup does. So there's been some challenges since then. Um, however, uh, what we saw is we were at a point where we proved there was a market, we had a, a solid product, and an acquirer came in and saw that picture as well. So. There's, and, and, and certainly from my standpoint, I was really excited to reapply all that learning to even bigger opportunities. Um, so in starting Outrider that we'll talk about it, you know, this was a, and you talked about the size, the, the sky, size of the uh, uh, acquisition isn't uh, disclosed, but multiple okay. tens of millions is a, is a range you can think of. Um, and uh, all the investors and all the employees did well from it. Oh, great. That's, 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 that's fantastic. Okay. Which is, you said- which is also why, you know, investor, which is, I always make the joke. Um, I had thoughts of starting another company, but just the pressure of the uh, former employees and investors being like, okay, when do we go again is uh, built up over the years. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you, did you take a year or two off? Did you, so were we you like, okay, okay. We did a little breathing room. I, I was sucked back in more quickly. I'd say for Another piece of advice for people that are exiting jobs or exiting a startup, um, it's, uh, it's very strange to have, you know, 75 people taken out from under you, you know, all of a sudden it's like, who am I? What am I doing? And so I, right. I was working as a, an advisor and board member for a number of different companies, but it wasn't like creating that next big thing. So um, I, I probably should have taken like one more year, but, uh, but uh, on the other hand, Outriders worked out very, very well in building this new company. It's, it's almost like a drug. I always tell everyone, once, once, you, once you've been an entrepreneur and you've had a little bit of success, whew, it's, hard to, it's hard to go back and do something yeah, different, right? I, I believe in a entrepreneur's memory is very much like a mountaineer's memory. You have these absolutely miserable cold nights and storms dangling <laughs> so on the side of a cliff. And you get back and you're like, wasn't that awesome? And it's the same <laughs> with entrepreneurship. It's like, hey, we like... everything's great like how bad could it be to do it again so true that's so true it's a great comparison okay so now when you decided all right so you're taking a little time off you're married at this time did you have kids too when you're doing having this time off yeah so that that by that time uh i actually um my third child was being born during the due diligence of the acquisition so i was literally uh, uh, responding to some Excel sheet questions at the same time with checking if the child was about to come <laughs> there. But yeah, well, I had a, um, I have, uh, I have three children. Uh, my, my, um, uh, my wife and I got married, I guess we're right at the 10 year, 10 year mark right now. Okay. Uh, we've got three children ages, cool. uh, five, seven and nine. And, and they are absolute little rock stars that, that uh, keep us very entertained. That's cool. Now, they got used to you kind of being around a little bit there during that little time off. Then you're, they're like, you know, and your wife, you know, you're telling your wife, like, Hey, I want to do something else. Are you starting to talk to her about, I want, I'm getting restless here. I want to start something else. And is she pushing you going, no, no, this is cool. Let's just, how'd that conversation go? I'm just curious how that family dynamic part worked right there. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, um, so like I said, (laughs) very specifically, I should have taken one more year off. The funny story there is we were, uh, we were going skiing and uh, one of the kids fell asleep in the car, the, 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 the smallest one. And so I had to stay back in the car. And just as she was about to take the other two kids skiing, um, I'd been talking about this new company. And finally, and I had these, this investor waiting to send the first check-in. And I had the first employee that I'd worked with before. They were going to quit their other job and join the new company. And I said, you know, uh, is, you know I, I held my wife's hands. I was like, should I really be doing this? And she was in a rush to go skiing. And she's like, Andrew, you know, I support you do what, you know, you know, you've been talking about this for a while, go do it. 
And so in the car, sitting with a sleeping child in the back, I accepted the first money. The other, the guy quit his, uh, quit their job. The employee quit their job. And then the next morning, my wife rolled over and said, hey, you know, I've been thinking, why don't you wait one more year before, <laughs> before doing this? And uh, that's, that's, uh, like, that's, pretty so, that's pretty funny. So, no, they, uh, they, they're super supportive. And that's good. I think one of the other things I learned was, um, you know, the tra travels, you know, use your time as efficiently as possible. Um, and certainly, uh, uh, it, it's, it's important to kind of integrate your family a bit into the company as well. So um, being able to combine some of those social activities so your family really feels part of the journey as well. Yeah, it is critical. I mean, without my wife's support, I never could have made RiderFlex go. I remember the very first conversation I had with her because I was in a C-level job making pretty good money for several years. And I remember telling her that we were going to make RiderFlex a recruiting company and I was going to go do it full time. And my partner, Scott, was going to join me. And one of the first things she said was, she goes, that's great. She goes, how much is that going to pay us next year? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't think about year one too much. Yeah, and I said, uh, I said, uh, maybe nothing. <laughs> yeah, they got to be, you got to have the family support really for, to, to make it work. I, I highly recommend that if you're going to be an entrepreneur and, you, and you're going to start something, your spouse or your partner, they got, they got to be all in with you or it just, it just won't work. Absolutely. Okay. So tell us how, how the idea for Outrider, how did it start? And then, yeah, talk to us about some of the early stage a little bit. Go for it. Sure. So, um, so first of all, Outrider is focused on autonomous yard operations. So there's 10 billion tons of freight moved on an annual basis around the country. Uh, most of that's moved by truck at one point or another. Those vehicles pass through a distribution center where a tractor trailer will drop off a trailer. Uh, it will, that contents of that trailer will then be unloaded, uh, resorted, shipped out to stores or supermarkets, et cetera. Um, so on a daily basis, you have this army of 50 to 60,000 what are called yard trucks shuffling these trailers around these big distribution centers. So um, yep. It's a specialty type of vehicle. As we're speaking right now, there's 50,000 of them uh, operated just shuffling these trailers around these confined, confined private property environments. Having worked in the trucking industry previously, what I realized is the trucking industry is actually a number of different niche markets, et cetera. And uh, I had been, uh, in, in my time since my last company, I'd been involved, I'd been invited to participate in some of the early autonomous trucking startups. I'd been part of a robotics company. And I realized these distribution centers were the ideal location to deploy autonomous vehicle technology uh, in the early days because they're confined environments, they're lower speed environments, and you don't have all those edge cases of people running around. Now, mm -hmm. back in 2017, when I was starting the company, this seemed like a little bit unsexy of an idea because everybody was promising robo-taxis the following year. Right. <laughs> uh, and what we saw, that the, the real innovation was we had to put together a very unique team to really... Um, uh, create this industry because it wasn't just the autonomous vehicle moving around short distances. You also had to think about how that autonomous vehicle connected to and disconnected from these trailers. There's a hitching process and a process to release yep. the brakes on the trailer. You had to think about how to safely dock these tractor trailers to loading bays. And you had to think about how to integrate all those trailer movements with the software systems inside the warehouses that were controlling what was going on in the warehouse. So you could put the right trailer at the right place. So it was a very uh, unique niche market opportunity of the trucking industry, and it required a knowledge of trailer yards, which only a percentage of the world think about on a daily basis, and it required sort of an understanding of what latest state-of-the-art technology and robotics and automation was. So uh, bringing those pieces together, we saw that this was uh, a complex technology, but a really unique set of, of uh, components that we could bring together to redefine what a modern distribution yard looks like. It, it sounds like some of the groups you were involved in, the companies, and all those things you did from your past and all your passions all just really came together in a perfect package for that idea. And then you were smart enough to go, okay, I know everybody thinks there's going to be self-driving cars in, in 24 months, but probably not. Uh, here's a great, safer area niche market to start i mean great vision on your part uh, so are you starting so when you get when this is formulating are you starting to go to friends or partners and you're 
you're starting to slowly gather a little team of people and go, hey, man, what do you think about this? And you guys are starting to formulate a plan? Yeah, so, so um, uh, teamed up with, uh, immediately teamed up with a couple of people I'd worked with previously. Okay. Um, but uh, again, sort of this idea of entrepreneurship, uh, mobilizing all these resources that don't require a lot of cash. These were people that were excited to on the side or, or start working for very minimal cash and start really working right. on um, flushing out the business plan and putting the key pieces in place. So, um, so yeah, uh, again, in those early days, trying to be very cash light, essentially, and pulling together these ideas until you had that core idea and could start raising money on top of it. Um, one of the other things, uh, just in that in integrating all those past interests, um, I'd spent nine years of my life trying to get these semi-trailers to be 5% more fuel efficient at highway speed. Uh, what I, what I realized was when you're, when you're, if you decide to start a restaurant, you can spend 10 years building just one very great restaurant, or you can spend 10 years building a chain of a thousand restaurants. Yeah. And when I thought about the environmental impact of the next company, I really wanted to find something that wasn't talking about just getting a 5% fuel efficiency gain, but how do you actually uh, usher in this era of a truly sustainable transportation system? So the other piece that we integrated into this and, uh, and brought in was this idea that there was really great electric vehicle technology that was perfect for these short haul yard applications. Okay. And so from the beginning, Outrider was founded not only to automate all aspects of these yard operations, but also to deploy that automation on a superior electric truck platform and accelerate the retirement of these 50,000 diesel trucks that are idling and spewing out emissions for no reason on a daily basis. Now, as a business owner, if I own the yard, let, I'm, I'm going to pretend like I'm a, I'm a yard owner for a minute. Absolutely. You got it. And, and you're, 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 pitch, you're, you're about to come pitch me, right? Yep. <laughs> now, the great news is you spent nine years in this industry, so you had the connections, right? You, you, could, you, could, get, you, you could get the meetings because you're like, hey, Bob, listen, I got this new thing. I got to come talk to you. All right. So you're coming to sell me. You're coming to, to pitch me on this idea. My first question is going to be, how much does this save me? Like, can you just show me them? All I care about is this, what, does this save me money, payroll, fuel? Give me the, give me, that's the first thing I want to know. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, right out of the gate, you've got, so I'll, I'll talk about a couple of different levels, but um, from an autonomous yard, uh, right out of the gate, you have direct cost savings. And it's not, you know, for most of these yards and uh, and COVID has had a little bit of a change in this environment, but overall, super high turnover rate that uh, you've got to, it's not just the cost of the staffing, it's actually finding people. Let's say you have a yard with eight yard trucks. You've got to have four ships of people to drive those 24 hours a day to keep this distribution yard moving. Mm -hmm. um, so just finding people to do that. And this is hazardous, intense work. You are slamming, you're jolting these trucks against the trailers to hitch them on a constant basis. You're operating in heat, cold, You've got to get in and out of the truck yeah. in a very dangerous environment where you have 80,000 pound pieces of equipment. So our business model and the value we're creating for these customers is number one, there's a direct cost savings because you're not paying for this labor. But okay. the bigger deal is that now you don't have the hassle of actually trying to find this labor, recruit, staff it around the clock when it's one of right. these classic, what they call D3 jobs, dull, dirty, dangerous jobs that people <laughs> are tending to, to, to migrate away from. Um, so a lot of our customers, they like the direct cost savings, uh, but then the, uh, the this you know finding the labor and, and, and training, et cetera, there's this bucket. But the two other, the, the two massive value drivers are enhanced efficiency and enhanced safety. So from an efficiency standpoint, um, our systems know exactly where your assets are at all times. And so when we move those trailers around the yard, that means that you've got perfect information of where all your trailers are and you don't have all of a sudden a dozen people on the inside waiting to load a trailer and the trailer not being in the right place at the right time. So you have efficiency on the inside and then on the outside with the over the road trucks that are coming to drop off those trailers or pickup trailers, we're able to tie the data between the warehouse and the over the road truck, truck uh, tracking systems such that we can pre-position trailers at a very low marginal cost. So that over the road guy, rather than coming into the yard and trying to find a parking place, can drop off a trailer right near the front of the yard, turn around, pick up a trailer that's pre-staged or valet parked for them and get off that yard. So tremendous efficiency gains. And then mm -hmm. finally, on a safety standpoint, a lot of our customers, even if they didn't save a penny, 
would implement these systems just to get people away from where these 80,000 pound pieces of equipment are operating. How about the fuel savings? So from a fuel savings standpoint, um, these electric truck platforms that we've chosen to layer on top of are absolutely going to be the new standard in the industry. So every one of the Fortune 200 companies that are our customers are extremely excited to swap out their fleet and not only save the money by not having to deal with the fuel cost, but also get away from the emissions that take place near their associates working in these warehouses, um, reduce the need to do on-site fueling. So they all of a sudden, they, they don't have the danger and uh, spills of having tanker trucks come onto their yards. Um, and then the electric truck platform is much more reliable uh, from a fewer parts, easier maintenance. So for an autonomous system, that's really perfect. Um, so just all these multiple levels that, that, that the electric vehicles would phase in even without autonomy, but you layer autonomy on top of them and that transition will happen even faster. How, how quickly do I see my savings? I'm guessing there's an initial cost to get set up and implemented and I got to get that, sure. that truck yeah, in the so, system. So does it, do I get, so do I see my savings? E next? Yeah. E easy math, just, you know, two, two year, two year payback and you're throwing off cash okay. after that. Okay. Um, Okay. So this is a, this is a pretty, pretty simple payback model with okay. all these efficiency and safety benefits on top of it. What is the business model? If you don't mind me asking, is it, uh, are you charging them? Is it, is it like a web-based, is it like a SaaS business uh, for the, for the, it, yeah. So, so Outrider as core is a, subs a software subscription business where okay. we're not scared to get our hands dirty and make sure that the hardware is the reliable systems that can work day in and day out in the field. Uh, but okay. it's a subscription-based model. That's correct. And the do I have to pay for the unit itself? Do I do I pay like a one-time fee for the truck and then a monthly subscription for the software? How does that work? Yeah. So so that, that's exactly right. So if you're if you're a customer, uh, there is some hardware and, and setup that you do up front, okay. um, and then you pay this this ongoing uh, uh, autonomy as a service fee that uh, that gives you that system on an ongoing basis and ensures that we are monitoring that uh, as well as supporting it over time. Are you backlogged on your, on your trucks, on your, on your, what do you call, what, what are they, what's the, what are you calling we them? We call them the outrider system, but, but yeah, so we, uh, uh, we are, uh, we've had incredible demand. And again, um, you know, ev everyone realizes the future is autonomous. A lot of these companies have invested billions of dollars in warehouse automation. And we always, we always use the example that having a, uh, having a, a automated warehouse and a yard operating like it has for the last 40 years, a little bit like going to the prom with a nice shirt, but no pants on. It's like, oh, it's, it's absolutely natural that you automate inside and boom, it's automated on the outside. And those trailers are ready to go for your over the road trucks until those get automated as well. Have you called Jeff Bezos and say, Hey bro, I got this thing for your, all your, uh, your, your, your yards. You just need to buy a bunch of them. We, like what? We, know, we, we know all the big players and uh, yeah. <laughs> Demand has been uh, been tremendous for this integrated system. Really exciting stuff. I'm just kind of joking around, but I can almost imagine that conversation. You call, you're like, look, you guys got the best warehouse operation on the planet. You got that down. I'm about to solve your yard problems too. Let's just, let's work this out. Yeah, no, we, we have that solved. That's correct. <laughs> that is so awesome. Let me ask you this real quick. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a couple of uh, questions at you that I'm sure you've gotten some pushback on. Go so, for it. So my brother is a truck driver from Oklahoma. Awesome. I've spent a lot of time in Oklahoma. Good. <laughs> uh, I, I told him, I was told, I said, Hey, I'm going to be interviewing this guy. I said, check out this company. He looks at it. Guess what? The first thing he asked me was just take a guess. Uh, so it's one of two things. It either is a trucker saying, what the heck are you going to do in a snowstorm or two, it's going to be about jobs. Jobs. Yeah. The first thing he said was what about the jobs for these guys? Excellent. And I said, and I was thinking, of course, you know, I've done some more robotics companies interviews and we've had guests on the show and I always like to throw it out there because I know you guys get hit with that right on a regular basis. No, so, it's, it, I appreciate you bringing it up. So, so let me, let me address it yeah. square up. So, so uh, in those years after selling my last business and I was looking at a lot of, you know, new, new possible company opportunities, I was totally fascinated what was happening in, with autonomous transportation. Yeah. And I, I, realized that I really didn't want to get into an industry that was, you know, overnight going to displace and cause all sorts of direct job loss. And so I spent a lot of time on that. And from the beginning, Outrider's mission, Outrider really has two core missions. One is to demonstrate the responsible deployment of automation technology. 
And the second is the acceleration of sustainable transportation technology. So on that first point, um, there's two parts of that. One is to deploy things safer. So is there a way to deploy technology that gets people out of harm's way? But the second thing is, how do you actually deploy automation, which replaces these jobs? And what's been so interesting in working on this specific application of yard environments is the rate at which we will be deploying a customer's distribution yards is at or below the turnover that they're already experiencing. Wow. And there's a tremendous need for these same individuals who are moving trailers back and forth in a yard to take jobs within the warehouses or in the over the road trucking where there's a driver shortage. And so with each of our customers as part of our deployment plan, we're actually actively engaged with them. And, and to be clear right now, we are, we've been deploying uh, early version systems and partial yards. So we've not begun our rapid ramp, which will start okay. later next okay. year. Um, okay. But uh, with all these customers as part of our operations and safety planning for the yard, we have another piece, which is working with their teams to talk about how do we do that? Because the one thing we don't want is like, hey, there's a warehouse with eight yard trucks and the next day, all of a sudden those eight jobs disappear. And gotcha. we can work with those customers to really think about how those people get repositioned. And that's really something fundamental and important to our employees. That's great. I appreciate you touching on that. One of the things that a previous guest said, and they're making robots to... Uh, to do uh, clean, clean offices and so forth, you know, house, housekeeping things. And he said what you said, the three D's or whatever. He's like, listen, he goes, the jobs, he goes, we're making robotics for the jobs nobody wants anyway, and we can't find employees to do them. <laughs> and it's heavy, and, you know, and it's heavy I would, turnover. I would, I would just say, you know, there, there's a lot of awesome people driving, driving yard trucks, just to be clear there, but okay. this is, this is hard work. And as you think about all the, all of the evolution in our economy, where tremendous leaps in productivity essentially create new jobs and create higher and better standards of living. This is a yes. chance to, to increase productivity. And, and the one thing you just have to be careful of is where that fails is when the transition is too fast and you don't give people time to adjust to it. So there's this human part of bringing new levels of productivity in, which, which we think a lot about. Good stuff, Andrew. Let me ask you this one. What about you know, I've seen too many movies probably. What about the fact that the oil industry is like the most powerful, they're the most powerful people on the planet and they want to, they want to crush all you guys that are making vehicles that run without, run without gasoline. They want to like, Andrew's going to end up like assassinated or something. Like I, I, too many conspiracy theories. The oil companies are super powerful. So I, I'll, I'll say this, the, uh, the most forward thinking people in, in the oil industry are ones that are going to be investing in next generation sustainable technology. And so I, uh, I, I love the opportunity to work with those people and think about creative ways to essentially disrupt and, and uh, change businesses going forward. You know, the fax machine had to be disrupted as well. Uh, so does the oil industry. Um, to, to folks that, you know, I'll, I'll give a very personal story. Um, I, uh, in 1996, I saw a slideshow uh, about the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Northern Alaska. This is this absolutely incredible, pristine wilderness area. There's 120,000, uh, what are called, it's a porcupine caribou herd that migrate across this area of tundra like they have for the last 10,000 years. And it's the last little undeveloped strip of coastline in Northern Alaska. And there has been a multi-decade effort to open this place up to oil drilling. Really? When I, I went with a mountaineering buddy and then a, a larger group, so I've been up there twice, once doing climbing, once doing a 120-mile rafting trip, um, but I had a chance to see this place in person. It's literally like this, really this Jurassic Park that all of us Americans own, and uh, it was a place that really inspired me to demonstrate, or, and I had had this career experience that there is so many incredible clean energy technologies and efficiency technologies that eliminate the need to drill every last corner of this planet for fossil fuels. And it really inspired me to build AT Dynamics and now double down with Outrider and carry on this message. So I believe the biggest business opportunity facing today's generation of business leaders is to reinvent everything we do, whether it's transportation, energy, uh, food production, materials, in a more sustainable way to, to support a planet growing to 10 billion people. And so, uh, uh, I, I certainly don't live in fear of, of, of old school industries, but um, hope, that, uh, hope that I have the chance to partner with the ones and reinvest that capital in, uh, in the next new economy that's coming quickly. That is really well said. 
you know, I, I guess my small comparison to that would be, uh, you know, like people used to, let's take Philip Morris, for example, when, when, when cigarettes were finally labeled as, hey, this could kill you. Guess what? They started investing in all kinds of other stuff. That's yeah. the same thing. That, that's the same thing the oil companies are going to do. I mean, these are, these are powerful, you know, uh, entities that will shift their investments to other things. Yeah. Right. And, and hopefully for the good, just like you mentioned. And, you know, there's a, there's, a, you know, I do hear a lot um, of, I hear, I hear a lot about the comment, well, you know, the future is going to be a mix. It's going to be a mix of solar and wind and gas and nuclear, et cetera. And, and that's sort of true, but okay. through some good entrepreneurship and some good customer demand, uh, we have the chance to make that mix a lot more, a lot cleaner, a lot faster. And it's exciting to, be, to work with people that are also committed to that. Really cool stuff. So today, the company today right now is how can you, can you, I know you probably can't share revenue or, or you probably got some stealth customers or some, what do you want to share as far as where it lives today and what, what size it's at? Do you want to tell us anything? Sure. So, so we, um, we have, uh, uh, we have grown in uh, essentially two years to over a hundred people. Wow. Uh, yeah, so it's a it's a it's an army, and this army is working. I I will say in that mix are some of the most incredible entrepreneurs and and most committed people I've had a chance to work with. Um, we uh, we have uh, we announced in February that while still in stealth mode, we've been working with five different Fortune 200 companies that cool. represent hundreds and hundreds of distribution centers across the country, um, accounting for thousands of these yard trucks by themselves. Mm -hmm. um, we have a, uh, uh, we, we may, it's, it's hard to know, but we just through some of the pilot activities we're doing, um, if not at the top of the heap, we're, we're certainly at the, in the top levels for autonomous vehicle companies, just because of the very specific use cases we're focused on. Um, we are, uh, we have a significant amount of revenue just based on some of these pilot activities we're doing with customers as we prepare these customers for a larger scale rollout. So really exciting time in the company history. and hiring uh, like crazy now as we scale for this next phase. Good for, good for you. Your, your early investors, you know, I know how these VC and PE, PE guys think, right? They're like, okay, yard trucks, that's cool, but that's, that's, that's a little small. Like what are you going to make? What other vehicles are we going to make? Right. I'm sure you got, I'm sure you got push around all that. <laughs> yeah. So, so right now, so this is a multi-billion dollar industry that we're going after just in this niche of distribution center automation. Okay. Um, but That's yes, good. we're all right. thinking bigger than that. So what I'll, what I'll just say there is uh, <laughs> the team we've assembled is so unique. One pillar is this autonomous vehicle capability. One pillar is robotics and manipulation. So our autonomous trucks actually have robotic systems on the back to connect. Um, and I encourage you to go to outrider.ai to see the uh, some of those robotic systems in action. And the third piece is multi-vehicle system control and management and cloud-based management software to control these networks of vehicles. So you can just imagine that, that what we're doing is applicable to lots of other transportation oh. sectors and industrial applications. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll have you out at some point in the future to, to uh, dispatch a, a multi-thousand ton truck uh, with the click of a button. I would love it. I can't, please put this technology everywhere because if you can make the planet a cleaner, safer place, and I don't have to drive anything to get there. I'm sign, sign me up right now. That's right. You can go on your, you can go on your uh, camping trip with a press of a button in an electric car. I, I would love, I mean, I like driving my Jeep around in the mountains, but it'd be even better if I could have a six pack of beer and let it drive itself and I could just chill <laughs> and just look at the scenery. <laughs> Very cool. um, the, two final questions. I know we're almost out of time. It, great, great career so far. You started one company, sold it, had a successful exit. Now you're building another one. I mean, kudos, my friend, and raising a family with three, three kids at home. Uh, you're a busy guy. Congratulations on, on what you have done. Really awesome. Thanks so much. If you could call that young man, though, uh, coming out of Middlebury College, I'm guessing you were like 21 or so, probably, right? Yep. If you could call him and tell him anything right now and go back in time and tell him something, what would you say? It's, it's a great, it's a great question. You know, I, I, um, I appreciate that, uh, in those early days I had this focus. So that's something I'm very appreciative of in terms of, you know, the, the biggest learning. Um, I think, uh, I think, you know, the comment we, we spoke about before about, uh, team and, and 
I realized team was important. People said team was important, but along the way, you realize just how important team is. Um, right. So, so I think uh, I think that's a absolutely critical piece of the the puzzle. Um, I think the other thing is that over time, you build that hard shell. But in the process of building the hard shell, there are some things that seem like a really big deal that a few months or a few years later just become not a big deal. And so I think, uh, I think it's important to sweat the details so you learn about them, but being able to be very confident in yourself and um, uh, your vision, I mean, always test and refine those things. But, uh, but just uh, being aware that you're going to get, you know, hit by a train when you're crossing the tracks and just be able to bounce and get back up and, and, and a little, little bit, a uh, little more of that toughness from the early days um, could, have, could have probably gotten through some of the, the early problems of AT dynamics that took months or years to get through could have potentially been a lot shorter problems. Mm. How about this? Last question. If you had to, I, if you had to, put your core purpose into a sentence or two, your core purpose in life. If you had to summarize that in a sentence or two, and I asked you to push that just away, away from your wife and three children, let's just assume yeah. that is, that's, let's assume that's Part number one. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's set that aside for a second. Beyond your immediate family, what is Andrew's core purpose? The most invigorating and rewarding experiences in my life has been adventuring in the outdoors with people and preserving that experience for decades, hundreds of years, thousands of years to come, I think is a really inspirational thing to work towards as a career choice. I couldn't agree more, my friend. I Like I, we talked about early on before we started recording, I'm a huge, I live in Colorado, I go to the mountains, every time I get a chance. I think I've been camping 15 times already this year. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and, and I mean, I go every single chance I get and I am all about that. I am all about preserving that area and just, yeah, so couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast, Andrew. Excellent. Hey, thank you so much for the time and I look forward to staying in touch. The Rider Flex podcast features entrepreneurs, business executives, and the stories behind how they got there as well as daily tips on career advice and job interviews. Our show can be heard just about anywhere these days, but you can visit riderflex.com and click on the podcast page to hear all the previous episodes and learn more about the recruiting and consulting services we provide. Contact us at the email address info at riderflex.com or 888-964-5876. Thanks so much for listening, and if you enjoy our show, please be sure to subscribe to our channel and like the episodes.